We make a start with some breaking news that's coming in. Metro workers from 27 stores in Greater Toronto area have a new collective agreement after a month-long strike. It became a pop culture moment. All of a sudden, all your favorite, you know, writers of your TV shows are on the picket line. What's inspiring about the Quebec Common Front is its ability to draw these unions together and to build real relationships in struggle. Welcome to Spring Radio, a podcast for socialist ideas in action. I'm Josh Frame, Spring member and co-host of the Spring Radio podcast. From the PSAC strike in the spring to the ongoing Common Front strike in Quebec, 2023 was a year of historic strikes for workers in Canada. While the total number of strikes was lower than it was over the last two years, the number of workdays lost to strikes was the highest it's been in over 20 years. So workers this year were using their power to make substantive wage gains. To round out the year, Dave Bush of Spring Magazine spoke with Emily Leadham about 2023, the year of workers' struggles in Canada, and also about the state of labour journalism. Emily is a reporter at Press Progress and creator of the Shift Work newsletter. Looking back on the year of of labor news, there was a number of high-profile strikes in Canada, some of them actually historic. Could you tell us about some of those strikes that stuck out in your mind as being significant? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the first ones that comes to mind is, of course, the PSAC strike, um, which was a massive strike across the country of uh, public sector workers. And this was pretty significant because I think it surprised a lot of people. It certainly surprised me. I saw the strike votes rolling in. And, you know, as someone who watches labor news and labor developments, you see strike votes um, come in. And and that doesn't always mean that there will be a strike. It's often, you know, a tool in itself to have in in your back pocket. Um, And whether or not workers actually use it is another thing. And so when the news came that they were actually going to walk out, it was very exciting and very significant um, because this union hadn't been on strike in uh, around 30 years, I believe. It was was quite a long time. And this union is not really known for for its militancy. Um, I knew a few members who worked uh, for the public service and were participating in the strike. And it was really interesting to see them be on strike for the first time and watch their coworkers be on strike for the first time and learn about, you know, what it was like to be on strike. You're paying closer attention to your union. You're paying closer attention to the politics of it. It was a very political strike because um, all of the, you know, federal leaders had to have opinions on it. You know, how are they going to approach dealing with this strike how are they going to um, resolve it? And what we found something was very interesting is that everyone kind of wanted to frame themselves as a friend to workers. There was not any immediate uh, or very strong calls for back to work legislation, for example, um, given that's a tool that the federal government can use and has used in the past with public sector workers. Um, even the conservatives, Pierre Polyev, um, had to kind of dance around the issue and and never officially called for back-to-work legislation. Um, so I think that the way that all played out was quite significant. Um, they did win an, an increase 
in their agreement. Um, whether people thought that was enough is a, a different question, but they, it was technically a success. Um, but again, from talking to workers within the union, um, it was a real learning experience and, and I think a transformative experience for people um, in the union because a massive strike on that level is a very, it's a technical feat. <laughs> and if you can, you know, if you can improve the your striking capacity, if you can improve your internal organization, that only makes you stronger. And so it'll be really interesting to see what this means for PSAC in the future and how this strike um, has transformed the public service and, and the workers and their relationship with the union. So that was obviously a pretty significant strike. Um, right now we have the common front strikes in, in Quebec, which if you kind of add up all the, all the different unions and the workers that have been on strike, um, it is technically, could technically be considered the largest strike in North America um, with over half a million workers uh, out on the streets um, at certain points in the last last month or so. Um, and that hasn't got a lot of attention outside of Quebec um, in the rest of the country. Um, there's a lot of, I guess, language barriers sometimes with, you know, predominantly French coverage and and all that, but it really is a shame because it's it's historic, it's so significant. And then obviously the Metro strikes were quite significant um, and the port workers strike in BC as well. Um, so yeah, like there's been a lot of labor, like really high profile um, activity. And I think people are really paying attention and the workers who are going on strikes are getting an education in, in labor as they're participating, but also people who are watching are also learning more and absorbing more about what the labor movement means and what the labor movement can do. So I think it's really interesting that way. Yeah, and some of these strikes were, you know, as you're saying, the common front was, it's historic. It's an historic strike. Um, and the PSAC strike was also a historic strike in terms of the large bargaining unit that was participating. Uh, I had a number of friends on strike in, uh, with PSAC. And one of the things that sort of I learned was a lot of these workers didn't really know each other, like they worked remotely. And so that they were forging their relationships uh, through the strike and learning how to do this together and meeting for um, in person for the first time on the picket line and how to organize. Um, so it was very uh, interesting, and I think, transformative for that union, which hadn't been on strike that group of workers since 2005 and for the union that means so many of the workers who were there had no memory of the previous strike and those that did probably had a sour taste because the 2005 PSA street uh, PSAC strike did not go well right like it did not really result in a major victory and I think that this this strikes it with PSAC. I think a lot of the takeaways for the workers has actually uh, been been a positive, right? So that was kind of interesting to see it. And I was with you as like a, uh, like I saw it gearing up, and I was like, is this actually going to happen? Because you know, as you see some unions doing going through all those motions as they should to prepare, but you're never quite sure at the last minute whether a deal is going to happen. And you know, seeing because I haven't seen this union on strike and 
many years uh i was uh, a bit shocked uh and yeah it was kind of very interesting to to follow i just want to talk a little about um the number of strikes because as you were saying there's these high profile strikes with the port workers with psac the common front metro strikes but the actual number of strikes was at quite low this year statistically lower than the two previous years but the length of the strikes um, is much longer. And the number of workers uh, in some of these strikes has been quite significant. And so that has added up to the number of days lost to strike uh, been higher than it has been in 20 years. And the stats don't really capture anything that's happened in December uh, as of yet. And uh, so I think when we do the full accounting come January of how many days were lost per strike, it won't just be the largest number of days lost to strikes in 20 years, but maybe something uh, much more significant. So could you just tell us a little about what you've noticed about what are the issues that are driving workers to strike action? Yeah, definitely. So of course, the main thing is the rising cost of living is inflation is the fact that um, everybody is falling behind, especially um, throughout the early years of the of the pandemic um, and seeing inflation rise like just astronomically. But even before the pandemic, right, there was just a widening uh, gap between the most wealthy and the least wealthy. And we saw this continue throughout the pandemic and perhaps even be exacerbated where, you know, billionaires were accumulating more wealth. CEOs were accumulating more wealth than ever before. And so it's not like this magical scientific formula that just like happened and workers all of a sudden don't have as much money in their pockets. No, the money is going into someone else's pockets and it's the CEO's pockets. And so I think that results in a lot of people just being in the same boat, being like, I thought maybe I was making an okay wage, but now, now I'm not anymore. Or like I've been struggling for so long and now I'm at the breaking point. And um, I think being able to see their union as a vehicle for that, a method to fight back is really valuable. I was reading a lot of articles from last year that talked about how there is this moment where, you know, public sympathy or public support is, is with a lot of workers for what they had to go through in the early days of the pandemic. Um, and would labor be able to seize the moment and make the gains and, and kind of fight, fight back given this kind of historical moment. And it appears that that has been the case in many cases. I think leadership has shifted in certain ways and ha is kind of responding to pressures from their members, which is generally positive. So I think that, yeah, I think that workers are increasingly seeing striking as, as an option, whereas before maybe there were other, you know, other routes that they might take. Or like you said, if they had a negative experience from a strike or they, they didn't see a strike as a positive thing, they maybe would be like, oh, let's avoid that at all costs. But now they're seeing, okay, like maybe this is a way that we can win. Yeah. And I think the other part of it is also seeing other workers, as you were saying, take strike action. So in Ontario, at the end of 2022, we saw a very public fight between Ontario's mm -hmm. education workers uh, with QP and the government. And the government, you know, did 
a lot of things uh, in terms of passing very draconian legislation, having a very public fight with the education workers, and it galvanized. Those workers were organized, prepared. They'd done huge strike votes. They had gotten their membership together. But then around that, there was a big solidarity campaign that involved the wider public and other unions as well. And to the point where those workers defied a piece of legislation, went on an illegal strike, were joined by other education workers in OPSU for a wildcat strike. And ultimately, they defeated a conservative government and forcing them to withdraw a piece of legislation and made some gains on wages. Now, was it the gains on wages that workers needed? No, but it was definitely better than what the government was offering. And so for most of the broader public, they saw that as a victory, that when workers actually united and fought together, that they could achieve something. And what they needed to achieve was higher, higher wages. And you can kind of see that reverberation happening, I thought, in 2023, because I noticed there were some high profile strikes that were the result of workers rejecting tentative agreements. Mm -hmm. So the metro strike, those 27 metro uh, stores in the uh, greater Toronto area went on strike because the workers rejected a tentative deal. And they did that, I think, out of probably desperation of like um, living in Toronto where there's sky high rents, where wages are nowhere keeping up with the cost of living that they, they felt like they had to. It's like kind of... You know, I don't think I don't think ever workers go on strike on a whim, right? It's a very serious thing, mm-hmm. in some ways risky thing, um, and so that those workers were 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 desperate and saw that they actually had an option to engage in collective and a collective fight back. Yeah, exactly. I think um, it's interesting to note the level of organization and planning and preparation that goes into some strikes because you know we know that behind the scenes there has been kind of a lot of organizing in certain spaces like for example i know that a lot of union members particularly public sector union members through through qp and other unions have participated in workshops like um the organizing for power workshop run by you know jane mcalevy through the rosa luxemburg foundation and it's kind of bringing back this training of this more militant style of organizing where you're engaging with workers on the shop floor an element like that is changing the way that that workers see their their union but then you're right for workers who maybe have not participated in that level of organizing they see a really large strike happen they go oh i could do that too i think something that is right now coming to mind is the the what's called the the red state revolt or the the strike wave that happened before the pandemic um in the US where the West Virginia teachers went on strike and it was a massive strike and they planned and they organized and they they prepared for it and then there it resulted in some other teachers unions going on strike around the same time but like the level of planning and the, the factors that went into those strikes were, were definitely different and it resulted in kind of different outcomes. But nevertheless, it was like this really high profile successful strike inspired teachers um, in, in red states in, in 
kind of typically like Republican right to work states to um, say, oh, we can we can do that as well. So and I think that talking about the high profile aspect of it means that we're talking about the media, right? They're high profile because they're getting a lot of attention. Workers are hearing about them. And I think that speaks to the level of labor reporting that is happening where, you know, I talk about this quite a bit is throughout the pandemic, every story became a labor story, right? And a lot of reporters became kind of labor labor reporters or had to learn how to do labor reporting just because like that was what was in front of them. That was the story to be told. And with the teachers um, strike against Doug Ford, that was, you know, at the intersection of politics, Doug Ford, um, Queens Park, and then also this like labor issue where people were really breaking down the collective bargaining process and breaking down like you know having this kind of level of in-depth conversation about labor law and all this all the stuff that some people I, I talked to said you know we've I haven't seen this kind of discussion happen in this public way maybe ever or in a really long time the fact that these kinds of terms are just becoming more common knowledge and more public in the media so Definitely, I think there's, yeah, a combination of workers' militancy, but then also increased attention from from the media as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, it comes down to that uh, everybody loves a winner. Like, if you go out on strike and you win and people can identify with you or as a group of workers, right, facing, you know, similar conditions like a cost of living crisis, a uh, like rising rents, all these, all these things, and people also are facing those things and then they see uh you you collectively go out and take action and actually address some of those issues it gives people not only pause but an example something that they want to do they they feel attracted to that right it's why when strikes happen it's important that they actually win don't necessarily win everything but like the uh, the worst possible message is to go out and and loots right like get your your mm -hmm. your head kicked in right because it's like mm -hmm. the message that you're sending is that if you do collective action it's you're gonna lose mm -hmm. and it's why trying to be as organized as possible at, like a, at the rank and file level for workers is, is super important mm -hmm. um and that when strikes do pop up and they feel unexpected that they they are supported and given the best chance to have the best outcome for those workers, because it's not just those workers that are impacted by a strike, right? It's every other mm -hmm. worker as well. So we're all invested in it. And, you know, and I think there were some high profile American strikes that I think happened this year that some of them were very high profile because they were the, the writer's strike and the actor's strike. And those, mm -hmm. those were lengthy strikes. They resulted I'd say in some of the biggest victories I've ever seen in, in the labor movement, they won almost every single one of their demands uh, when we're talking about the writers. And, you yeah. know, it also, it also like, I think has changed a bit of the conversation about, about unions, that, that unions can be effective vehicles for changing people's circumstances. And the UAW, which has not been a source of militancy or effectiveness, went out and, you know, engaged in a, a significant strike action against the big three auto companies and had some major gains, but also transformed workers in the process. 
that the, all these worker mm -hmm. leaders came through that strike feeling more confident and more willing to organize and has transformed that union and also created conditions here, I think, especially in, when we're talking about the parallels in Big Auto, uh, the Big Three Auto, that Unifor was able to also have significant advances with some tiny strikes, but significant advances um, not necessarily all because of uh, the UAW, but it created good conditions for workers to advance. And so I just wanted to say like that, that is important, right? Like the profile that these things um, get matters. Yeah. The writer's strike particularly um, and, the, and the actor's strike, it became a pop culture moment because all of a sudden all your favorite you know, writers of your TV shows are on the picket line and you're on Instagram and you're seeing them post you know, photos from the picket line or your actors, your favorite actors are wearing like, you know, a union t-shirt um, and talking about how strikes are good. And so it's people who don't even pay attention to, you know, like the ins and outs of labor news or politics or, or whatever. Um, they were exposed to that through another, another channel, which is kind of this, um, the entertainment industry. And I think that is, really significant as well. I think that is something that we should think more about on kind of a popular education level is kind of permeating um, more of these spaces where you have, you know, like, yeah, exactly. Actors, writers, singers, um, people in creative fields talking about the importance of collective action and labor organizing, things like that, so that it doesn't feel like it's just a thing for unionized workers, or it's just a thing for labor nerds or academic nerds who like to <laughs> talk about the statistics of the strikes or people who are really into politics, making that information more common knowledge. So I think that between those, those two strikes, it really helped elevate labor action into kind of more common knowledge and popular lexicon. Yeah, and I think just changed, especially in America, probably people's opinion about unions. And I would say with the writer strike, they had great, great signs. You know, that's what they're paid to do. Well, that's the writers, they also had really great communicators as well, um, who can communicate in an in engaging and articulate way. And that's so important as someone who kind of has tracked strikes and followed strikes you you also kind of learn about how they're written about and how unions are communicating their struggles as well and it can be a, a balance between you know talking a big talk and not being able to follow through or having a you know a big action plan but making sure you have like an effective communications strategy behind it so that you can really educate um, the general public, you can educate your own workers as well and make them feel like they're right there alongside you and that it's easy for them to, to understand and to also cut through the anti-union messaging that of course happens every time that there's a strike, right? Every time that there's a strike there, you'll have the employer, you'll have a lobby group, you'll have like chamber of commerce type group come out with all their channels and all the resources to talk about why the strike is bad. So I think that's something also to keep in mind as well, is that powerful communications can really help combat those forces that want to negate the power of the strike. Yeah. And I, I do want to talk more about the role of labor journalism and writing about strikes and lockouts and issues facing workers. But just in just in the theme of trying to profile 
important strikes and spread lessons um, and organizing strategies. I want to circle back to the common front, uh, what's going on in Quebec, because as you said, this is you know maybe North America's largest strike. In my mind, it's one of the most significant strikes uh, for not only the amount of workers, but how it's been uh, rolled out and the unity between different unions. I also know that the teachers that are on strike, which aren't necessarily part of the common front, um, what I find remarkable about that is the main teachers union does not have a strike fund and that they are like, this is I think not of their choosing. I think it's how the union had been organized in some sort of constitutional thing from back in the day that they don't have a strike fund. And now it has new leadership and new direction and trying to fight for workers. And so these workers are on strike, these teachers, without a strike fund. And I find that both terrifying for those workers. I think that's really hard. Um, but also it just shows that, A, the courage of those workers to go out and do this and engage in this fight and and the desperation those workers are actually facing to go out there without a strike fund and to you know, be taking on the government for, for better pay and for better working conditions for, for your students. But yeah, I just wanted to talk about that because as you said, it's like, what, 500, 600,000, depending on how you count the number of workers, if you include uh, the teachers and stuff. That's in December. Uh, I think it was like something like 6% of the total population of Quebec was on strike <laughs> at some point, which uh, is a remarkable statistic. Um, could you just talk a little more about this this strike and and why it, why it's so important? Yeah, definitely. So I think a significant element is the fact that their collective bargaining um, has all lined up. Like the 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 last agreements that they had, they all expired around the same time, so that they're all kind of at the bargaining table around the same time, and that's kind of the point of the the idea that there's a, a common front. And so obviously, like doing things like that, that requires a lot of foresight um, to be like, okay, like in however many years, we're going to make sure that our collective agreements are going to all expire around the same time and be organizing and working towards that moment years in, in the future. So I think that can be, yeah, it just, it just speaks to the level of foresight and, and organizing. And you noted that there is a, a leadership shift. I do think that matters um union leadership i know that there's lots of debates about you know like of course you want rank and file organizing you don't want everything to be top down um but if you have leaders that believe in rank and file organizing or leaders that can kind of facilitate that more within their union um, and dedicate resources towards organizers towards workshops towards communications to like if that's your ethos um it can become a lot easier to sort of transform your union into a fighting union. And that can take a really long time. I'm not speaking, now I'm speaking more broadly. I'm not speaking directly about any of the, the unions in Quebec, but talking about the, the long-term project of union revitalization and how it can take years and years and years of, of organizing to try to transform the leadership of a, of a union. And sometimes you'll get a window of opportunity. And if you're in the position to take advantage of that window, then I think that that can make a world of world of difference. And I think we're, we've been seeing that across the board with a lot of these leaders, like the UAW, for example, you know, like new leadership. Yeah. I think it just speaks to the level of foresight that 
you can make something big happen, like a common front strike. It doesn't just happen overnight, but it has to be part of a long-term strategy. Yeah, totally. And I think it is, you know, in Quebec, they're facing a, a conservative, essentially a conservative premier. Like there's so many conservative premiers around uh, that this is like, if you want to advance the interests of members, like if workers and the both in the public sector, but just broadly in the province, you know, from advancing things like employment standards as well, that you actually need a mechanism to build unity and trust of workers actually fighting together. Um, and so you can kind of see this in, in, in Ontario, where the teachers unions in 2019 did line up, uh, the, had their agreements lined up, and then did have essentially a united front of the different teachers unions, all four teachers unions, and were able to start to advance actions and smallish strikes, like one day, I mean, big one day strikes and actions and stuff like that. That was the best approach to be able to to take on, um, you know, essentially a right wing government bent on uh, gutting your membership and attacking your members and attacking the conditions under which they work. And now we have a, a situation in Ontario where it's like the teachers unions aren't really working together and they've pretty much all settled up on deals. Some of those deals are pretty good in terms of advancing wages, but are not really advancing any of the other kinds of interests of those workers, right? So the the class size and composition, um, violence in the workplace and all these things that matter to those workers. And that like, you know, ultimately does push people out of that profession. And so to me, what's inspiring about the Quebec Common Front is its ability to draw these unions together and to build um, real relationships in struggle against uh, and put the maximum amount of pressure on the on the government because you know often in public sector strikes you're not it's not just about a withdrawal of your labor causing like a, a crisis in the bottom line like it doesn't quite work like that you actually have to cause a political crisis uh, and to do that you actually have to go much broader than 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 your membership right you actually have to bring along with you the communities that you serve and then the other unions that are related to you. So I think that it's very inspiring what's happening there. I want to talk a little about another flashpoint that's happening inside the trade union movement, and that is over the question of Palestine and Palestine solidarity. As you're aware, prominent trade union leaders like Fred Hahn and others have been attacked for voicing solidarity with Palestine. And workers have been under even a greater attack than any trade union leader. Uh, they've had their jobs threatened. We know many people have ha actually been fired uh, for speaking up on Palestine. And so the question of free speech on Palestine has been uh, a pretty big question facing the trade union movement. Mm -hmm. um, and also a question of just like what international solidarity should look like and what unions could do. So could you talk a little about what's going on in terms of the issue of Palestine in the trade union movement? Well, yeah, a number of large unions have, you know, signed ceasefire agreements or signed the ceasefire now coalition, uh, QP, NUPG, Unifor, PSAC, CUPW, uh, FAE. Um, so these are, you know, really massive segments of, of the labor movement that are essentially calling for a ceasefire. Um, and then some others 
have kind of gone a step further and have really tried to educate their members and really tried to go deeper into the issue. I know, for example, PSAC had a webinar um, where they tried to talk about this issue, inviting Palestinian speakers and, and academics and researchers. Cup W um, also put together a webinar and uh, there's a group called Labor for Palestine, which is kind of a network of trade union activists across the country who are trying to organize within their unions to show solidarity around this issue and increase pressure for, for a ceasefire and educate their, their members and really trying to shift the narrative in Canada about, about this issue. A lot of members have been comparing it to the fight against apartheid in South Africa and noting the historical ways that unions supported um, the fight against apartheid then and saying, you know, there's no reason that we shouldn't be doing this now. A lot of them are responding to calls from, you know, Palestinian trade union movements who put out calls for support and solidarity. Um, so I think that's pretty significant that this number of um, unions have been engaged in, in this issue. And this is a free speech issue um, to be able to talk about the different narratives around uh, Palestine and to ch kind of challenge the status quo because the stakes are so, so high right now. I've been learning a bit more about the free speech, the history of the free speech movement um, in Berkeley, for example, in California, noting that the big movement around free speech in the 60s was around being able to do political organizing on campus. And a lot of that is related to civil rights organizing and anti-war organizing. And so I think there is a really leftist and progressive history of um, free speech and organizing around free speech that I would like to see highlighted and kind of come back more because it feels like the conversation around free speech is always kind of dominated by conservatives who, and the right wing who decide that free speech is whatever they want it to be. And they're not actually interested in protecting workers from being reprimanded by their employers for like whatever political positions that they they might hold. Yeah. And I think, you know, the unions have a long and storied history of, of fighting for free speech in Canada. Right. It wasn't that long ago that like, you know, uh, trade union members and workers couldn't speak up on any issue and be protected. And that employers put all sorts of limitations and the state puts all sorts of limitations around political speech and that unions and union members and uh, were ex very involved in fighting for an expansive view of uh, freedom of political speech. And so I think that like defending someone like Fred Hahn, who essentially was a voicing the already democratically decided position of his union, QP Ontario, defending that was not just defending free speech, it was also defending the basic principle of union democracy. Because if we can't stand up for workers and trade unions and trade union leaders defending democratically decided positions and defending the idea that people can take political stances and you know voice political speech 
then what we're saying is that employers should, you know, control every aspect of our lives and that the attacks on trade unions that were speaking up were attacks by the right wing, by people who are not actually interested in free speech, who are not actually interested in democracy and action inside our union movement, and that these people wanted to shut down any gesture of solidarity, any gesture of, uh, of an opinion that they did not like. There's a proud uh, story tradition of unions doing international solidarity, taking stances of international solidarity that we need to defend, right? Like unions took principal positions on opposing the Iraq war. Unions took principal positions on opposing apartheid in South Africa, on opposing all sorts of other terrible elements of Canadian and American foreign policy. Uh, and that unions actually have a, a, a very significant role to play in this as working class institutions. So back in February, um, polling was released that showed Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservative Party, was leading amongst unionized workers and unionized workers both in the public and private sector. So this is pretty shocking. So what do you think accounts for his popularity and what can unions do to combat that appeal? I think there is a pretty concerted strategy from the Conservative Party. And we saw this even before Polyev with Aaron O'Toole um, trying to really have a pro-worker message and be like, I'm a friend of the workers and putting forward during that election campaign some proposals that seemed like they were friendly to unions and worker friendly. So I think Polyev is kind of kicking this up a notch and he's talking about these issues. And then he's also like trying to explain why they exist. You know, it's, it's kind of like this Ben Shapiro level, like I'm going to say something that sounds complicated and, and smart, but <laughs> it's actually, it's actually not. But um, if you say it confidently enough, it sounds like, wow, this guy really has a plan. Um, and so I think among you know, workers and unionized workers as well is, is just a level of political education um, so that when Polyev starts talking his talk, um, we can be like, okay, that actually doesn't really make a lot of sense. And, and providing workers with kind of education and knowledge to be able to poke through some of the holes and, well, not, I am not say poke through the holes in the arguments, but just like, you know, rejecting the premise of uh, a lot of Polyev's talking points, I think. And when he was in Harper's, you know, cabinet, he really wanted to stake his career on busting unions. He was very overt about that. He's like, I want to bring back right to work. I want to be that guy. Um, and he's had to change his tune a little bit because of the political circumstances, because there is general support for, for workers. He kind of has to dance around it. So I think really highlighting some of his previous statements on on unions is really important. I think highlighting the kind of divisions as well, the way that they're trying to divide the labor movement. And you've been seeing this with Doug Ford, example, for example, in his courting of the construction workers, particularly construction worker unions, and being like, look, I got some endorsements from a few construction worker unions. That means I'm worker friendly. Meanwhile, he's passing legislation that is freezing the wages of, of healthcare workers, right? So I think really trying to 
forge solidarity between public sector workers and private sector workers and not letting the conservatives be able to pit them against each other or seem like their interests are are opposed because that seems to be the strategy right now. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, Polyev, I noticed this during right off the bat in the pandemic when the issue of the wage subsidy came up that he was one of the only voices that I saw oppose it in inside parliament. And um, he did it on the basis that this was just going to be free money for big corporations. And it was like a very interesting thing to hear him, obviously, as someone who is, uh, I think, tied to the <laughs> to the interests of corporations, that he was able to pivot and be able to sort of say that it's the liberals and the NDP and others that are actually lining the pockets of big corporations. And lo and behold, a couple, you know, a year, year and a half, two years later, that when this sort of um, kind of details of the wage subsidy program broke and that it was a bunch of large corporations who made off like bandits who gained the system, that he ended up looking correct and right. And then when he won the Conservative Party leadership, he painted himself not as an advocate of, of big business, not as an advocate of you know the business class in general, but as someone who was trying to stand up for the little guy, the workers. And you know, I remember there's this moment in the lead up to mm -hmm. the education workers strike in Ontario, where he had a he had this interview with an ECE who's a conservative or whatever. And then it was the first part of the interview was like, like this discussion with DCE was uh, would fit in with a discussion that you or I would have with an ECE it would be about all the terrible working conditions and structural problems, etc. Now, the conclusion was like, we need tax cuts and credits and like whatever. It was like a free market solution. But it was something that at the beginning, really spoke to the actual conditions that workers faced. And I think every time that the Liberals and NDP, which are at the federal level, fairly tied together right now, like not really like, but in people's minds, they are this very similar. That's what the yeah. conference supply uh, deal has done is has tied their fates. And when people are pissed about what's going on in their lives, that they're blaming those parties that they seem to be in bed with special interests, et cetera, big corporations. And that, you know, Polyev has, has, has been able to skate on some of that stuff. Now, I think some of the things that Press Progress, you folks have been doing and The Breach and others have been like kind of just really detailing the ties between the Conservative Party and Pierre Polyev uh, with big business, with the oil lobby, with the real estate lobby, et cetera, is, is super important. But I think it is a matter of providing an alternative. And that alternative is when workers are actually engaged in fights, like in strikes, fighting for migrant rights, and like being able to point to instances of collective struggle that produce positive outcomes for people. And when people see that, I think that is the best bet. Because like in a year from now, uh, you know, we'll be entering 2020 five and you know uh there'll be an election on the horizon at some point maybe there'll be an election this year i i don't really know but all i know is that that is happening and it is scary to see that large chunks of the union movement support polyev so i i i definitely agree with you about the a lot of work to be done 
in, inside the union movement. I wanted to talk a little about um, just just pivot a little and to talk a little about your experience as a labor reporter and as someone who has been covering the labor beat uh, and doing labor journalism for a number of years. Could you just give us sort of a status overview of like where labor journalism is right now in Canada? Yeah, definitely. So I have been doing it for about five years now, actually, which is kind of exciting. I was trying to figure out like, when did I, when did I first uh, kind of start doing this back in the day, working with you at rank and file. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I've been doing this for five years. That feels like really good because um, I just feel like I've, I've learned a lot and it's been, it's been so great. Honestly, I really like working on this, uh, on this beat. Um, and it has been interesting to see it kind of evolve in the last couple of years. Um, and I really think that, that it has, um, we talked about the the pandemic and how, you know, kind of every story became a labor story and a lot of labor reporting was done by media workers who didn't necessarily have the title of labor reporter, but they were covering different kinds of issues and kind of forced to learn more, um, about labor. So I think that has been good. I think there has been an increased interest. Um, I went to the CAJ conference, the Canadian Association of Journalists conference last uh, April, I think it was, and it was in Vancouver. So it was a bunch of journalists from across Canada. The keynote speaker was Amber Bracken, who has done great work. She's a photojournalist. Um, she's covered the Wet'suwet'en blockades, and she spoke about solidarity journalism, and she spoke about the conditions for freelancers for freelance photojournalists for you know just media workers in in general and how we need to build solidarity among journalists because of the conditions that we're facing as workers and so i thought that was a really fascinating window into and and she received a standing ovation it was such a powerful speech and it was so powerful to see a bunch of journalists, mainstream and independent journalists from across Canada, really resonating with with that message. So that is to say that, you know, even though there aren't a lot of people with the title of labor journalist, there is an increased appetite for these kinds of stories, which I think is really great. But we have seen um, some new positions, some new reporters that are specifically tracking labor issues. One is Vanmala Subramaniam at the Globe and Mail. And Van Mala has been a business reporter, um, largely, and she was able to move into a new role that was focused more on workers and more on workers' issues, which I think is really fascinating. The fact that that labor reporting is technically kind of a facet of business reporting as well, and when you're doing labor reporting, you kind of are doing, you kind of are doing business reporting. And in BC, we've had uh, Zach Vescara start his new role as a labor reporter for the TAI. Um, and so that's been really great. And I've been able to like meet and speak with both of them. And of course, there's Sarah Mojahedzada from The Star, who's been doing this for, for a long time. So I don't know, I'm kind of heartened by the fact that this uh, field has evolved a little bit. It's still not like amazing. And there's still a lot of challenges that, you know, I know even these reporters face in, in doing their jobs and um, advocating for that. So it's not perfect, I think that there is a moment and I think that there is an, an appetite 
And there, I think there's potential to build on it, but it can't be taken for granted. Like, oh, this is just something that will naturally evolve. I think that there or could be more pushback against this kind of reporting within within the industry of, of journalists. It's something that we have to fight for. I think the labor beat will be pushed forward by people who are interested in doing labor stories. Because when you're pitching stories to you know, to editors, to publications, what you have to do every time is you have to make a case for it. You have to go, this is why this matters. This is why we should tell the story. This is why I can tell it. Um, and so I think the more reporters are able to, to do that and articulate why it's important, the more expensive labor reporting we will see. And I think there's something also to the idea of what covering a beat means. Meaning that yeah. people who dip in and out of covering yeah. a particular area, uh, it's quite different than someone who consistently follows an area of, of news. And yeah. so when someone is is dedicated to, to discussing or talking about the labor movement, it means that they're building connections, they're building knowledge, yeah. they have the right networks, how building they understand- trust building trust they're building like a, a background they know where things are yeah like the strike has happened but there's like it's it's happened because of like the four previous rounds of bargaining right and exactly if you're not yeah. around um and talking that through with people then you kind of don't you're missing a huge chunk of what is actually uh, happening and there are i would say yeah some some great labor journalists around um, but so few relative to what I think is such a huge area of, of life, which is work, man. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing for me is like, regardless of the, you know, political aspects of it, um, there's just a gold mine of stories, like high stakes conflict. There's, there's drama, there's community struggles. There's, there's so much there that's really, really untapped and it is so terrible that the state of the industry right now means that workers are so precarious. We're losing beat reporters, um, deep investigative reporters, people who can really, really start to get to know an issue. Um, that is harder in so many segments, not just labor reporting, but like city hall reporting, right? Like things like that. So I think it is partially also reflective of um, the state of the media industry in, in general, but that, uh, yeah, that institutional knowledge really matters. Something I've been thinking about as well is that like labor is also actually so broad. And what I would love to see is increased um, niche labor reporting, right? Like healthcare reporting, healthcare labor reporting is a whole, whole different kind of ball game than like other kinds of struggles, you know, there's just the, the issues in there can be so complex. Same with construction, the construction industry, right? Like they operate on a different set of rules, different set of kind of dynamics. So it would be amazing if we had like a construction labor reporter, right? Um, same with the migrant, migrant rights issues. And this brings me to something which is like, what, like we're on the left, right? Uh, what the left should think about how we focus our energy about trying to support and build an infrastructure around labor journalism as yeah. an as in, in my mind I think in in spring we approach it like 
like this, and and I'm very much in agreement with it. With his, we try to support like journalism as organizing, and by that meaning going out, talking to people, building relationships, discovering ideas, what motivates people, like why people are taking action, taking the best um, lessons of strategy and tactics, and trying to spread that everywhere and give workers a voice um, and to kind of profile that and center that in in in, uh, in how we talk about things. And then that is helping to organize, like to produce and then distribute that is to helping to organize a broader working class fight back and like thinking about how we can support that in many different areas. And I know that you've yeah. been working on the shift work newsletter. And for anyone listening, if you're not subscribed, I, I it will be in the show notes, but I totally recommend it because you do something that is so important that I don't see anyone else do, which is you compile every single like news article about every single strike, every single lockout, every single piece of legislation that involves labor and every other single political issue that involves the trade union and labor movement in the broadest sense. And you put it into a weekly newsletter and it's an extremely valuable resource. So, and kind of maybe just walk us through where the shift shift work uh, newsletter came from and then kind of what you're hoping to do with it. Thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, because I, yeah, I guess I started it because, you know, this is kind of what, how we describe it is there's a, there's a business section in every newspaper, but there's not a labor section. Right. So I would love to find out like what's, what's going on, you know, because like you said, there's this labor reporting, it happens from different reporters, some outlets, there's stories, there's really good stuff happening in mainstream and also independent. There's some real like incredible stuff. Um, so I just wanted to kind of centralize it for kind of partially for myself because I use reporting as a way to educate myself about these issues. And so I was like, this is a way for me to stay on top of kind of what's happening in Canada, but talking about building that institutional knowledge as well, when you are able to kind of see things from a bird's eye view, you kind of get a different perspective. Um, and you can kind of observe different trends that are happening. And I realized, you know, there's no comprehensive list of strikes that kind of exist across Canada. And so I was like, okay, well, let's try, let's try to do this. And as I've been doing it, I've kind of understood, oh, okay, this is why nobody's done it because it's kind of tedious. Um, it can be kind of really tedious and frustrating sometimes, but it's been so valuable because again, you see the big strikes, but you also see the smaller strikes that are happening. And what I've tried to do as well is because I'm, I'm tracking it through media reports. There's a few different ways you could actually do it. You could track it through like the official official data because there is official data that gets released about it, um, like statistics, but I track it through media reports. And that also gives you a sense of what the conversation is, what the dialogue is, what um, how these narratives are being formed about particular strike actions. Yeah, it gives you a broader sense of what the conversation is like in Canada. So that's why I do it. And it's been really valuable for me. And I'm really thankful that, you know, other people find it valuable as well. Shift work is a way to track like labor activity, but it also is a way to showcase the labor journalism that's happening across the country and the great investigations and 
research that's been done um, and to really showcase and try to build up the case for, you know, building back the labor beat, which we've talked about. It's going to take some concerted effort to really bring it, like bring it back to a capacity where it's just normalized in our media ecosystem. One thing that we have done at Press Progress is we have a labor reporting internship, which has been really great. I've taken on doing that this last year. Um, We have a partnership with the UBC School of Journalism, which is really exciting. And it's so fun being able to, yeah, like pass down this kind of institutional knowledge to young reporters and have conversations about about labor reporting. One thing that has come up is, again, like talking to, when you're doing labor reporting, you're talking to a lot of unions, union reps. Um, It's actually quite difficult to talk to workers themselves. And this is a conversation that I've had with other labor reporters and with our our interns. You know, why is that? Why is it hard to actually talk talk to workers? And in having these conversations with some workers, you know, they feel very hamstrung because they're often forced to sign NDAs where they can't even talk about things that happen within their workplace with their other coworkers. Um, Like if there's an issue in the workplace, someone is saying there was a resolution and the union, like the the workers couldn't even publicize that to like the rest of the workers because they were forced to sign NDAs. And so my thinking is that they wouldn't go to such lengths to try to suppress workers' voices if they weren't powerful. So I think that is something I find really valuable about um, about labor reporting as well, and kind of a, a struggle in that for for future labor reporters um, to figure out how can we showcase more workers' voices, get the real story. So, if anyone is listening who is interested in supporting labor reporting, um, supporting the newsletter, or building up the labor beat. Um, honestly, please contact me if also, if you know any funding resources that are available, please also reach out to me because like I said, um, it's not just about me and my job. Oh, I'm a labor reporter. Um, I don't want to be doing this by myself (laughs) because there's so much out there. There's so much to do, so much work that needs to be done. And we really need to build up the labor beat. I think this is an important political project, something that I'm interested in. And so, yeah, reach out to me and let's have a conversation. Yeah, and I'll just reiterate that if you are listening, definitely subscribe to the Shift Work newsletter. It is a great resource. And I would say if you're in a union, try to encourage your other union activists, your shop stewards, et cetera, to also subscribe to that is just a very valuable resource. The other thing that you can do is, yeah, think about donating, but also think about how your union can actually support the, like a labor journalist like Emily and like press progress and shift work, right? Like unions need to be able to fund uh, those kinds of positions. So I would uh, definitely think about raising that at your uh, local union uh, for donations to to that. It is definitely money well spent and the union movement has a lot of money not well spent. So let's let's take some of that 
poorly spent union money and directed towards something that's actually valuable, like supporting labor journalism. So last thing I wanted to talk about, we've been looking back at the year 2023. What's on the horizon in terms of, you know, I think uh, issues that are facing the labor movement. I, I know we've talked about the cost of living crisis and, um, you know, workers uh, like retention in like things like healthcare and parts of the education sector and all that stuff. So could you just talk a little more about uh, what you think is we should be paying attention to as the um, new year uh, ticks over? Yeah, well, something that we haven't talked about is um, the migrant rights movement, which has been, you know, pressuring uh the federal government, Justin Trudeau, to follow through on um, his promise to create a regularization program, which would grant uh, be an expansive program to grant status to migrant workers in Canada. And that would be significant because the state of migrant work in Canada, like, you know, again, just following all the reporting for the last couple of years, you really get a sense of like, how horrific it really can be and so that is something to definitely pay attention to because the minister of immigration has announced okay like it is coming it is coming we promise we promise it's been two years since they've made this promise so we'll see how that unfolds i think that'll be a significant political discourse for sure because already we've seen things like people trying to blame the you know state of housing on new Canadians or migrant workers or, um, or on immigration, you know, that, that kind of racist discourse, um, coming up. So I think if we see significant changes to the migrant workers program, I think we can see an increase in this sort of possibly racist, uh, discourse. So that's something to pay attention to. I think as well, um, the minimum wages across the country, um, have been going up and will continue to go up in, in April. A lot of them will, be uh, increased. Many of them are above $15 already and will be uh, higher than $15. Of course, that's great to see. But again, given the kind of state of everything right now, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see where the organizing for non-unionized workers, for low-wage workers, where that movement goes um, as these minimum wages increase. And I think the, you know, organizing drives are something that I would like to pay attention more to myself personally. I think we saw a bit of promise regarding the Starbucks union drives um, about a year ago, but I think it that hasn't quite panned out in the same way um, as it has in the States where we saw this massive wave. We, we saw a few shops unionized, which were great, but Starbucks definitely got really aggressive with their anti-union campaign. And so um, I would hope to see kind of more of that organizing low-wage workers, a strategy on, you know, we want to build up the strength of our union. So what does our organizing strategy look like to bring new workers into the movement? I know, for example, for migrant workers, an argument that has been made is that, you know, the we have more workers who have status, who have the, the same rights as uh other workers in Canada, that is a huge source of potential strength if we are able to organize these workers where they're not fearful for being deported. That can really strengthen the labor movement. So yeah, I think there's those are just a few things that are kind of coming to mind right now. 
That's great, Emily. Thank you for, for joining us. And uh, I will say, uh, have a happy holidays. I hope you get to watch a lot of holiday films. Norma Ray, I think, is actually a holiday film. We should make the case. Is it really? I've actually haven't seen it's it. It's not really, I but like... I uh, I feel like it could be that that cotton could be snow. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. And uh, yeah, and all the best uh, with Press Progress and the Shift Work newsletter. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Always great to talk to you, Dave. I love that Spring is always doing a lot of labor reporting, great labor reporting, and, and being a space that can publish young workers and young writers who are learning how to write about the labor movement. So I think that's a great space as well. For more information about how to sign up to the Shift Work newsletter, please have a look in the episode description. Spring Magazine is committed to continuing its coverage and support for workers on strike. If you would like to write for Spring Magazine, please email us at info at springmag.ca. This episode was recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. It was produced by Dave Bush, Carly McPhee, and me, Joshua Frame.